Well, welcome to episode seven of uh, The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and the Professor, of course, is PVO, Peter Van Osselen. G'day, Hugh. Good to be with you. Yeah, good to be back. What? Well, it started to fire up, hasn't it? The debates are done. We've had Bill Shorten's mum. What's the highlight for you at the moment? Highlight? Gee, that's a tough one. You've stumped me. I've been stumped with words for years, but (laughs) finding a highlight to this campaign, I've got nothing to say. Look, uh, the highlight for me, I suppose, being serious, is actually that this entire campaign, and we've talked about this, does genuinely have a, a choice for voters. I'm disappointed that that choice isn't better articulated by both sides of politics. You know, it's all scare campaign from the government and it's all she'll be right, nothing to see here from the Labor Party. I'd like to see them a bit more robust and engage with those ideas, but the highlight is undoubtedly that this is a real election with a real contest of ideas, even if they're not rhetorically doing it. It's not Tweedledum versus Tweedledee. Yeah, but who's bringing the ideas? Well, it is Labor more than the government, I have to say, but the government is conservative. They tend to take the view that on most issues, change is a problem. They like the status quo rolling on if the status quo is good. They would argue that it is because they're returning the budget surplus, they're sound economic managers, etc. So they don't offer a lot, but they are understandably going to be critical, but I'd like to see it in a bit more detail of what Labor's offering. Labor are the change agents and there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And it was interesting that in the debate at the National Press Club, the last of the debates, the questions, because the format allowed the leaders to put questions to each other, the questions were all about Labor policy. So the Bill Shorten was saying basically, would you support us on childcare, for example? And the uh, so he's basically putting up his policy. And the uh, the Morrison questions were about Labor policy. And Bill Shorten the next day saying, this government has run out of anything to talk about. All that man can do is talk about us. And there's some truth to that, isn't there? I think there is truth to that. I, I, I mean, I think there are reasons to have a genuine debate about the risks and the concerns and the model issues around what Labor is proposing. But let's do it in a way other than just screaming into microphones. They're legitimate questions. But the government seems to want to do it because negative campaigning works as a an out-and-out without detail for your campaign. But then, as Bill Shorten seems a little bit frustrated by, without then proposing an alternative, and that means that Labor and, and the opposition writ large are not in a position to really do the same politically, and that's been hurting them a little bit on the campaign trail. You picked the final debate for Bill Shorten. I did. I thought overwhelmingly so. Oh, uh, man. You don't agree? No. You thought Morrison got him? I thought Scott Morrison was stronger on his details. He's internalised the details so he can make a case. Morrison's weakness is that he hasn't got much to defend. But in terms of the information, he knows what he's talking about. Well, it's easy to know what you're talking about when you haven't got any policies. Yeah, yeah, but he also knows the numbers and the rest. <laughs> I know, of it. Well, I'm One joking. of the things that really struck me about, about it is that, uh, uh, you know, I've been around politics for a little while, you know. Mm. I've known, I've seen... Uh, Bill Shorten, the arc of his political career, you know, from from nowhere, from getting into Parliament and onwards, and and you think you know someone, but I've been struck by how many ums and ahs, how vague he seemed on detail, how at one stage he he had to stop and ask in responding to a Scott Morrison question what the question was again, as if he'd forgotten. Look, was- that's a that's a good point. I should say uh, that I do think that there were some stumbles, exactly that example. As soon as you started saying it, I, I was smiling here as we were talking because I remember the moment from the debate. He did have his issues, and I, and I agree. 
the Prime Minister is more across the detail. And partly that's interesting, isn't it? Because even though Bill Shorten has been around a long time and he's, in fact, they entered Parliament at the same time and he has been a minister and he's been the opposition leader a, a damn sight longer than Scott Morrison has been the Prime Minister. Morrison, as a former Treasurer, former Treasurers are always so much better, I think, with the details than people that become a, a leader without having spent time in the Treasury. And Kevin Rudd didn't and, and now we've got Bill Shorten. If he becomes it's Prime Minister, shot he won't. Julie Bishop because she tried to be the Treasurer and she just didn't have enough of that. And Julie, Julia Gillard, I think, suffered from some of the same phenomena. I do think spending she tried time... tried to be the shadow treasurer, I should say, for Julia Bishop. Yes. Just to correct myself, yes. But it's it, it's interesting. I, I, I hear why you would therefore give the debate to Morrison, and I think a lot of people did. I, I might even be a bit of a loner on this one. I guess I'm just used to now expecting Scott Morrison to pull the numbers out and to beat him on that, and I'm forgiving that one telling moment where... Scott Moore, sorry, where Bill Shorten did forget the question uh, and have to ask it. On some of the other issues, though, I thought that Scott Morrison actually had some clangers, you know, trying to have a go at Labor over not knowing who its foreign affairs minister, sorry, over who its home affairs minister is going to be when he doesn't have anyone slated yet for IR, the women's ministry, human services, indigenous, uh, affairs. indigenous affairs significantly, and I guess defence personnel because the current defence personnel minister is going to become the defence minister when Christopher Pine goes. And, of course, that leaves the Leader of the House open as well. And and, and then he, he also got sort of a little bit snarky about Kelly O'Dwyer, who's obviously retiring, and he goes into the thing, well, you know, and, and Bill Shorten hadn't mentioned Kelly O'Dwyer by name, mm. and he goes, oh, if you're going to have a crack at Kelly O'Dwyer, it's very important that people can leave Parliament for family reasons, etc. as if as if Bill Shorten had some, said something offensive about Kelly O'Dwyer when he hadn't. As and, if that also, Hugh, excuses Scott Morrison not finding a new women's minister or industrial relations minister. It's not Kelly O'Dwyer's fault that she's mm. leaving. It's his fault that he hasn't reappointed somebody or anointed somebody. But there's one person we do know would be back in a Morrison government if he was to be returned, and that is the uh, rather extraordinary disappearing environment minister, Melissa... um, What's her name again? Melissa Price. That's it, yes. (laughs) Easily forgotten because she doesn't do much media. (laughs) Would she be back again? Well, he said that she would be. Well, I mean, he's a politician, say things, you know, you've been around a long time. He was was put on the spot and he said, (laughs) yep. So... You know, in a sense, he's he's stuck up for a minister who has got to be said is an utter underperformer. And um, if it wasn't such an important portfolio, you'd make her foreign affairs minister and have her out of the country. <laughs> Heaven forbid. The thing I thought about the f- debate was that you look at Bill Shorten now. I think Bill Shorten will win. I think he's recovered from mm. that fairly slow start to the campaign. And so you're looking at him now as a prime minister. You're seeing him. Okay, so. He is the Prime Minister presumptive. Puts the pressure on, doesn't it? Puts the pressure on. And you look at him and you think, he's more of a stumbler. He seems more leaden-footed. I'm not saying he's not a strategic operator. I'm not sure he doesn't have all kinds of political skills. But in terms of being a communicator, he is worse, I would put to you, than um, Julie Gillard, worse than Kevin Rudd, worse than Scott Morrison, be an argument about Malcolm Turnbull because Turnbull talked over the heads of so many people. Mm. Um, Abbott had his skills once reduced to three-word slogans. He's he's not he's not that articulate leader that in a way we crave. There's no Keating. There's no Hawk. It took it took I thought Howard a long time to get really good at it. He was fairly clunky through the eighties. I remember going off to seeing speeches by Howard. 
in the in the 1980s during the opposition years. I think he was even a little clunky on his return in his first term as Prime Minister, actually. There you go. But he got better at it. He did, absolutely. Uh, so did. maybe maybe let's give him enough due. If he gets there, Bill Shorten could well get better at it. And then there's the mum moment. What did you uh, make of that? Look, this is an interesting one. I thought that the article in the Daily Telegraph was okay. I thought the front page positioning and the front page headline and all the associated inferences that therefore go with that was inappropriate. And that's important because that, if you like, becomes an editorial issue rather than the journalist who necessarily wrote it. But I can still understand entirely why Bill Shorten reacted the way that he did. I would say this, and I hope that listeners don't think I'm too cynical, but I think that Bill Shorten was being 100% open and honest with his emotions. They were real, entirely so. But I also think he's strategic enough, and I mean this as a compliment, not an insult, to know that displaying that openness and showing it was a powerful moment for him. And I think it was. I think there were risks. I think it could have gone the wrong way for him. He could have been seen as a sort of a whinger. But I think it worked because it was honest and legitimate. But I don't for a moment think that Bill Shorten wasn't aware of the strategic advantage of that. Now, he didn't ask for it, that said. So if anyone listening is looking to throw something uh, at their what, – what do people listen to this on? An iPod? iPad? iPhone? Anyway. Uh, I can understand them whatever feeling they that like, way. Whatever they like. I, I can – hopefully they're listening and still listening as I say this. But if if they're feeling like they want to throw something at the device, I, I don't think that Bill Shorten brought this on. You know, he didn't no. ask for this, obviously. No. I don't think he's in cahoots with the Daily Telegraph. No, he is not. And if the Daily Telegraph's aim was to cut him down and hurt him – well, I think they've absolutely had the opposite effect. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, it absolutely reminds me of the misogyny speech by uh, by Julia Gillard because what everyone forgets about that, it's now been YouTubed millions of times. It made her for some a, a, a global feminist hero. Uh, I will not be lectured about misogyny by that man, all that kind of routine mm. that was going on, that she was doing that in defence of Peter Slipper, who was the speaker that she had installed, formerly of the coalition ranks from Queensland, and who had been caught out with text messages that were fairly vile mm. uh, in a whole bunch of descriptions. They were really beyond the pale. And Abbott was looking to, at the time, score points against Gillard because she had installed him there into the Speaker's chair. Everyone forgets that she gave that speech in defence of a man who mm. had been that slipper who had, who had made some terrible comments. And, but it didn't matter. Because tactically, it was a brilliant masterstroke by Gillard, one of the things she'll really be remembered for. And in a much smaller scale, what we saw with Shorten there was he was offered a tactical opportunity by the Daily Telegraph and he made full use of it. He certainly As you did. say, he wasn't dishonest about it. And a thing about it which I thought it suddenly galvanised the election, you know, I don't think that is overstated because this somewhat plodding man, Shorten, in my view, suddenly became human and the key thing about it was is that he wasn't getting emotional in defence of himself, which wouldn't have worked at all. He was getting emotional in defence of his late mother, but through that was getting emotional in defence of every woman of that generation, the mothers and the grandmothers of almost all of us, who had had to park their reasonable ambitions because that was the gender realities of their time. And I'm sure everyone listening to this knows the context of what we're talking about, but in the briefest sense, because it's relevant, I think, to a next step discussion on it, yes, the accusation, if you like, implicit or explicit, was that 
Bill Shorten on Q&A on the Monday before, a few days before the publication, uh, was, if you like, misrepresenting his mother's career by talking about how she took a teacher scholarship for the financial needs of the family rather than pursue her dream of law because he didn't also mention that she went on to study law and then become a barrister of, of some note. Now, the reason I think that's bogus as a story, as a sort of insult, if you like, of Bill Shorten being misrepresentative, the reason I think that's so ridiculous personally is because the fact that as a mature age student, she went back and studied law, which she'd had this original passion for, which she wasn't able to pursue at a younger age when she had children and all the rest of it for financial reasons and so forth. The fact that she did go on to do it, leaving that out in no way, shape or form undercuts your story. Frankly, if anything, if you're being purely strategic as opposed to perhaps time conscious or not thinking that it's required, I actually think including that enhances Bill Shorten's story because he's saying that his mother is this brilliant person who missed out on her opportunity to be a lawyer, which was her passion for the family and all the rest of it, so therefore she did teaching. Well, the proof of that is that in her later life as a mature age student, by the way, post the introduction of new rules around university, her, the shoring up of her own financial position vis-a-vis her family, she did prove to be brilliant enough to study law, to top law, to become a barrister later in life. That doesn't undercut the story. No, so she always had it in her. Exactly. And it, and it was thwarted. She was good enough to get a university medal. These things are not given out. And it doesn't and undercut the, the other context of the financials of the time, which was no. his point. And the other thing about the newspapers, it said that, he, that she had gone on to an illustrious career and that he'd, he'd failed to mention that. But Bill Shorten put context into that too because she did win the university medal, mm. so Shorten says. I presume that's correct. Um, but she only got, Shorten said, nine legal briefs in her career as a barrister. Is that right? So oh. that is not much. No. And he said that she suffered discrimination against older workers. So bang, at that moment, he's not only defending his mum, he's setting the record straight, but he's also saying something which resonates not just to women who lost opportunities decades ago, but to, older but workers. to anyone right now who, because of their age, is feeling as if they're being discriminated against and despite their talents or abilities, they're not getting a fair go. That's a big constituency out there, which I reckon if they were hearing that, we're hearing something which resonated with them. And it's a, it's a constituency that Labor needs to try to tap into because whether it's franking credits, whether it's some of the issues around superannuation or whether it's just the fact that older voters tend to be more conservative naturally than Labor-leaning, Labor needs to try to play to those people. Uh, so it's got that added advantage as well. You're travelling through another dimension. Another dimension. Dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. That's the sign Your next up stop. Ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone. All new The Twilight Zone. Hosted by Jordan Peele. Now streaming exclusively on 10 All Access. Well, welcome back. We're uh, mid-discussion here in uh, episode seven of The Professor and the Hack with Peter Van Onselen, The Professor, and me, The Hack, Hugh Remington. All right, so that's Bill Shorten, Bill Shorten's mum. Let's have a look at where the politicians are going because, as you have rightly pointed out, don't listen to what they're saying, look at where they're going. Where have they been going? Well, it, that, that part of it hasn't changed in the way that I thought it might because, like you just said before, I also think 
that this is a Labor victory in the making. But what seems to be apparent by their movements is that it's not nearly the drubbing, not even close, actually, to the drubbing that it looked like it might be pre-campaign with a lot of the polling post the rolling of Malcolm Turnbull because Bill Shorten continues to visit more of the ultra-marginal seats held by the government. He even occasionally pops into one of his own seats that he's rumoured to be under threat, like Lindsay recently. Equally so, Scott Morrison is not sandbagging safer seats that look like they're in play, still marginal, but on the safer end of marginal. He's going to those right on the breadline ones, you know, Gilmore and so forth. A lot of time now being spent up in Queensland too, in a generic sense, if I could put it that way, because both leaders realise the importance of Queensland. We talked in a previous podcast about how they surprisingly hadn't spent as much time up there as we expected. Well, they have now. Labor launched its campaign up there, of course, as well. So that's been interesting for me because if the government was in more trouble than it perhaps is at the moment, there would already be that sandbagging effort of getting Morrison into some of those slightly safer marginal seats. Can I can I pick to one? When Scott Morrison was egged on the head by mm. the young woman, he was in Albury. Albury is part of Farrah, the seat of Farrah. It is Susan Lees, the former health minister, who sort of came unstuck. It's a 20% seat for her. She's got a 20% buffer. He was there. In fact, people said, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, this is where the Country Women's Association were having their event, so that's why I'm here. I'd have gone anywhere for them. Yeah, that's rubbish. But forget that. That's rubbish. So he's in Farrah. And the reason, as I understand he's in Farrah, Cathy McGowan, who is the retiring independent for Indi, just across the border in northern Victoria, is convinced that Farrah is in play because the... Former Mayor uh, Kevin Mack is running as a Cathy McGowan-style independent and Cathy McGowan thinks mm. he's got a chance there. Okay, well, let me let me, just, let me prove my point that sounds like it's in contradiction to that by talking about that. Uh, and on that same day he was in Indi as well where there's another independent running to replace Cathy McGowan as well. Uh, the seats are sort of close to one another. Uh, yes, Mack is certainly, you know, the Mayor of Aubrey, I think he's certainly... Uh, a genuine chance. The betting markets have them almost 50-50 in terms of their chances there. Amazing at one level because it's a 20% seat for Susan Lee. She's not an unpopular local candidate. But here's the issue. There are some. There is some overlap with Shooter's Party seats at the state level that fell, so there is a concern in that area. I draw a distinction between what I was describing about him visiting the ultra-marginal seats vis-a-vis Labor yes. versus those sort of seats. You know, he's not necessarily going into Warringah because that would become a circus but whether we're talking about Warringah as a safe seat where Abbott's got a problem or whether we're talking uh, about Farrah where Susan Lee has a problem, and there are other ones as well. Who's in Cowper as well? And Cowper- I think Cowper's gone, Hugh. I, I, I will be amazed if the Nationals hold Cowper. I now, have heard that it's gone. because this is Rob Oakeshott, who, of yep. course, was a figure of fun as one of the three amigos who held up the minority government of uh, he's coming Gillard back. back in 2010. Do you reckon he's home? I think he's home. I think the Nationals know that he's home. But that's a different... Well, why do you bother going there? Well to try to avoid that being the case. I mean, when I say he's home, they probably think they're a chance of swinging it back in their favour. But I I think and I hear that Nationals uh, think that this one is gone uh, and may even look to pull resources out of it to try to shore up some other seats. But it's difficult because they don't have too many seats that are in play in New South Wales. It's Queensland where the Nationals have issues. But I, I draw that as a separate campaign. That's a There is that campaign going on. And again, this is war on two fronts stuff for the Morrison government. They're fighting these independents all around the traps, like the ones that we've mentioned, and more. Let's not forget Wentworth and there, there are others. But they're also, in the main game, fighting Labor. And I, Morrison, yes, he's visiting some of these side 
fight against independence because that's something he has to do. But he's also, when he fights Labor and you look at where he's going, he's not going to the seats that we thought would be in play necessarily as much further up the pendulum. He's going to those ones that are right on the line. Now, perhaps this is something that we can say about where they're at. We both think that Labor will win, but perhaps more narrowly than it might have otherwise. When you look at where Scott Morrison's going, he's not spending an enormous amount of time in Labor seats. He's spending a little bit of time there, but he starts on 72 and he's going, sorry, 74, but then with redistributions that drops. He is going to have to win a number of Labor seats to retain a majority, particularly with that war on two front principle fighting against independence. So he would need to be regularly in half a dozen Labor seats if he really thought he was still in this contest. That, in this last week, has dropped off. How he must wish that he had a spectacular deputy or... Uh, and that's not to knock Josh Frydenberg. He's he's the best of them in terms of being available to be campaigning on behalf of the party. But uh, if you look down the front bench, there's not many they can put up to do heavy lifting for him. Dutton is busy trying to hold on to Dixon. He's he's not an asset across much parts, many parts of the country, even if you can hold Dixon, which I think he probably will. Uh, but you look at the others, Greg Hunt, all these people have been senior players. Uh, there's just no one around to support Scott Morrison in the run to the line. Oh, look, he's he's running as the sole member of the government almost, you know, with the odd little exception, as you note. Basically, he is a one-man band. There's little doubt about that. Whereas in complete contrast to that, Bill Shorten, because he has some personal popularity issues, uh, he can't go anywhere without a pack of his team around him. And that team is good, and I would argue that team is better, uh, both optically and perhaps in actuality, than the team around Morrison but boy, it's not just that. It's not just that the Morrison, sorry, it's not just that the shortened team is good. It's that he they are them. there to prop him up. It's almost like this is a little harsh. I'm putting that out there. It's almost like Weekend at Bernie's. You know, you've got the dead body getting dragged around. <laughs> this is our next Prime Minister, according to your judgment. And <laughs> well, we're already on Weekend well, at Bernie's. Look, I mean, look, he will be revived if he wins the election because Australians are a generous <laughs> lot. He'll get another crack. But. In a sort of popularity stakes campaign, he's a dead body getting carted around uh, by a very viable front bench. What strange times we live in. Now, you, of course, are a West Australian. Uh, let me sorry. jump in. Oh, sorry, sorry. Jump back in. I want to almost withdraw some of that in the wake of his emotional performance because I do think that that helped him. Um, so we'll see. There were signs of a we'll pulse see. in Bernie. Is that what we'll you We'll see if there's a pulse still there. <laughs> You're a West Australian and you know that state very well. I was intrigued. I was chatting to a, a Labor Party strategist today who's convinced there's a big move on in WA and it's going their way, that up to four seats are in play. There's only 15 seats in uh, in Western Australia and it hasn't always been a comfortable place for the Labor Party. Uh, is, is that is that? I mean, Hannah Beasley is Kim Beasley's daughter is sitting She's running for in Swan. his old seat. Hmm. So um, she's rated a fair chance. Are you getting a sense that there's a move on in the West? Well, that's what Labor in the West is saying. It, it, look, you, you can't trust either side on this. Labor in the West, exactly as what you're saying, very bullish about their chances over there. The West Australian Labor Party, when they talk to the rest of the Labor Party, are very bullish about their chances. And that's off the back of a massive state election win by the Mark McGowan now government against Colin Barnett's former government. But you talk to Liberals in WA and not only are they confident of holding the line, either entirely or largely, 
but they think they're a chance of picking up Cowan, which surprises me. Now, Anne Alley, who's a brilliant academic specialist on radicalisation. But not necessarily a cracking marginal seat stump campaigner. It takes all kinds of special skills, doesn't it? It does. So, look, where do I think it's at? I think that Labor will net a few seats. A few. But maybe not more than... You know, the couple version of a few. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you've got Hasluck and Swan that are, are the main two in play. And then on top of that, the two that are in play to get to that four number that they're bandying about really is Sterling where Michael Keenan is reti- has retired or he's mm-hmm. retiring. Uh, and it has always been a marginal seat, but without his personal vote, that could be an issue. And then the other one is Christian Porter's seat of Pierce, which is highly marginal at three and a half percent. Now there's others up the spectrum, but I think they're well gone now. It needed to but, be. But a if different you were to look, if you were to look at that, you'd be saying that uh, there's the potential that in WA, uh, two really significant figures in their own way in the coalition side are vulnerable to being flung. One is Christian Porter, who of course is a high-profile former. Uh, state touted as a future leader, former state treasurer, as you say, yeah, and, and touted as well, potentially as a future national yeah. leader of the Liberal Party. He could be flung out, really, I don't know. And the other one, of course, is uh, is Ken Wyatt, uh, the first Indigenous Australian to hold ministerial rank, uh, to enter the uh, lower house. And, uh, and the, I, m- my feeling is that there's a real historical significance if that was to come about. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, look, Wyatt, you would assume, is popular. So he would have a fairly strongly built-in personal following there given his stature. However, and he's not very political either, so I think people probably give him a tick for that. But Haslack is a seat that prior to his arrival was just going back and forth, back and forth, election from election almost between the two major parties. Swan less so. Yes, Kim Beasley represented it, but then he did move out of it just before the defeat in 96, I believe it was, to get over into Brand. Um, so it is a highly marginal seat as well. It tends to come and go with the electoral tide. And Hannah Beasley is obviously hoping uh, to benefit from that if there is a change. Christian Porter, I would I would say, look, Pierce is an interesting seat. It used to be a very safe Liberal seat. Demographics are changing because it's an outer metropolitan seat on the cusp of sort of r- rural areas. And as development is occurring to widen the city, that is a, a stronger Labor voting block that is therefore entering his seat. That's one factor which is against him. The factor in his favour is that he had a much bigger majority going into the 2016 election, but the combination of Judy Moylan retiring and him moving in there and probably not campaigning as strongly as he could or should have on the assumption that it was a pretty easy win for him, I think that that is a low 3.5% vote, vote, and he's working very hard this time. So who knows where it lands. Sterling is, is a very tough one to pick up because it's an electorate of two halves. It runs along the coast, and those coastal areas, Scarborough and so forth, are are very wealthy these days with their location, but then it also pushes inland where it becomes much more working class just off that because it's far enough away from the city. So we just don't know until the numbers start to really roll in how much Michael Keenan was holding that seat together, not just his personal popularity, but he spent a hell of a lot of money in that seat. He was a very good fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, Liberals have got a problem with that writ large around the nation and, and in particular within Sterling with him leaving. So let's just... in. Let's just for a moment assume a coalition loss Uh, and with all the caveats around that, the voters have yet to make up their mind on that and they'll tell us. But if you look at the coalition, let's say they go into opposition, they've lost a whole bunch of high prominent 
people anyway because of retirements. Mm. They have the potential there to lose others who have held prominence and others have been damaged by this process. So if Scott Morrison was to try to uh, – I'm going to say Dutton's going to come back. Uh, he's vulnerable, but I think he's he spent a lot of time in there because he hasn't been high profile. He hasn't had to go campaigning anywhere else. And I just don't feel that Dixon is a Labour seat. If you look at that, I just don't – it doesn't mm. feel Labour to me. So um, let's say he's back there. So you get Morrison and Dutton and you'll get Josh Frydenberg back, I would fully expect, in in Kuyong, despite the efforts of Get Up and Julian Burnside Absolutely. and all the rest of it. So. Where do, where would they rebuild? Who have they got? They could perhaps not even have a porter. Well, I think they're likely to still have a porter and, and they may well, as you say, be likely to still have a Dutton. Whether that's something that Morrison would welcome is another matter. They'll still have Josh Frydenberg. You know, they will have these figures. Their, their issue will be gender. Uh, they'll have very few women and they've lost two of their most high-profile women in Julie Bishop and Kelly O'Dwyer and their remaining two of their most, not their two most, but two of their most high-profile women that remain are problematic. Michaelia Cash, who probably won't stay anyway, you would think, in defeat, uh, and Melissa Price, who has been gaff-prone we talked about before. So, And then there just aren't many women in the and, ranks. And some of the, some of the ones you'd think that in another world would be ready for some sort of promotion, people like Sarah Henderson or Lucy Wicks. Could lose their seats. Are likely to lose their seats. They're in, That's right. Certainly they're, in the, they're certainly in the mix. Both, well, I would say both of them. And then someone like Linda Reynolds, who was a recent promotion into the ministry right at the tail end of the government, well, she's been pretty gaff-prone herself on the way through. So I I think gender is their biggest issue in opposition. But let me say this. There are three electoral outcomes, as I see it. I I think you can box them into three. One is that Bill Shorten wins handsomely, and I've I've almost thrown that one out. You know, I think the campaign has tightened, and I'm not sure that's going to happen. Labor don't tend to win big at the federal level anyway, so the chances of a hawk style, the one time that they did win big, I think is unlikely now. The second option is the option that Labor wins, but they win ugly, anywhere from a small majority to a minority government. I think that's the most likely scenario. I'll come back to that. The, the other option is the unthinkable almost, that Scott Morrison pulls this one out of the hat and therefore wins the least expected victory in Australian political history. I Surely in minority government, though. Well, you would think so, but either way, however he wins, it's an ugly win, but it's not going to be perceived to be ugly because it's a surprising win. So all power to him will be the view. Now, for me, the two preferred options are the first or the third. I, I would, you know, obviously I'll take whatever's on offer. I'm a commentator and, and, and an observer, but a big Labor win or a narrow Morrison win are my personal preferences because then you have some combination or other of a genuine mandate if Labor wins big and a genuine reflection by Liberals on what it means to lose because they lost big as a consequence. Or you have a fascinating scenario as a political observer to go, wow, we just had a surprise victory that we never saw coming. It's if not Morrison laid on for off, your entertainment. You do know that, don't <laughs> but, you, Peter? But, but that's not all about my entertainment because there, there are genuine values, I think, in a public policy sense to a big, strong Labor government or equally from a public policy sense to a Liberal Party that actually takes the time to reflect. So why if they lose don't big. you like the one that's a more likely scenario, okay. which why. is a narrow Labor Here's why. Because then you get the worst of both worlds. A narrow Labor win means that you have a weak Labor government and weak Prime Minister right off the bat. The Senate, I think, will play a lead hand in blocking them. There will be strong arguments that they don't have the mandate. The Labor government will still do all of its spending because they won't want to get in political trouble for not doing that, but they won't get all of their revenue measures through the Parliament, which means that the budget deficit will blow out. Uh, The Prime Minister 
notwithstanding their new rules, will be weak because his popularity won't grow. It will sag because he barely got there. He'll have the wolves at the gate against him. That's what happens to Labor. That's just more of the same, I would argue, to what we've had on both sides of politics over the last 12 years. Then you go over to the Liberal side and they won't reflect. The hard right won't get punished for what they tried to do with Dutton. The party will paper over the massive cracks that it has on policy and divisions and personalities. Uh, They will try to hold all that together because they'll say, look, we lost well and we can come back in three years and they won't do what opposition should do and to stop and reflect like the Liberals did in the 80s when they really thought about what they stood for after a big Malcolm Fraser loss. They won't do that. And so that's why that for me is the worst of all worlds because it's bad government and unstable government as well as non-reflective opposition where it's all just about getting back into power. And to me, I just throw my arms up in the air and go, oh, no, that's what's coming, and that's the worst of the options. Well, decision day is coming, Peter, and we shall have more Professor in the Hack chats as we approach election day. Good to talk to you. Talk soon. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 